Hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry, to hunger. Aaron has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set his world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And Elkanah went home to Ramah. The boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Have you ever had to call customer service for something? You probably know what a frustrating experience that is. You dial the 800 number, you learn that invariably they have recently changed their options. doesn't matter when you call, they've recently changed the options. But then as you listen to those options, none of the options quite align with what you're trying to do. So you're guessing, and all the while you keep testing, does the, the zero button get me to a flesh and blood human being? Agent, agent, you're saying, trying to get to someone. And then when you talk to a human being, inevitably this human being is is chained to some kind of script that's filled with all kind of patronizing phrases like, well, I can see how that would be upsetting to you, or I'm going to do everything in my power to help you today. And the whole time you're wondering, does anybody see me? Does anybody care about the things that I'm going through? Now, probably customer service, those issues don't represent the greatest trials in your life. But sometimes those experiences can bleed into the way that we think about prayer. And since we're never able to audibly hear back from God, we can certainly hear his word in, in the scriptures, but we can't audibly hear back from God. And so we wonder if it's one of those customer service experiences that you really hate where it says, leave a message and the customer service representatives will get back to you soon. You have no idea what kind of immediately deleted file that's going to go into. But the Lord assures us everywhere in his word that prayer is not like that. That when we pray, it is not a wasted effort. That when we pray, God hears us, God sees us, God cares about us, and God will answer us. He may not give us every last thing that we want, every last thing that we think that we need, but God promises that he will always meet our greatest 
Particularly the Lord promises that in the last day, he will raise us up from the big idea today is that the Lord will raise up. The Lord will raise up. As we look at this text, uh, we see three sections. First of all, the Lord's righteous judgment in verses 1 through 3. Lord's righteous judgment. Second, the Lord's reversal of the strong and weak in verses 4 through 8. The Lord's reversal of the strong and weak. And then third, the Lord's raising up his anointed in verses 9 through 11. The Lord's raising up his anointed. Now, if we remember, we were looking at this a few weeks ago. If we remember, this is a song that follows Hannah's prayer. And that for many years, the cry of Hannah's heart had not been answered. She had not received the child that she so desperately wanted. She was mocked mercilessly for this until the day that she went into the temple and poured out her soul in prayer before the Lord, and the Lord gave her what she asked for. But if, as you remember, if you remember when we looked at this a few weeks ago, Hannah's story is not just a story about a woman seeking a baby. The baby that she has given is the prophet Samuel. And the prophet Samuel will eventually be used mightily in the hands of the Lord to bring about God's redemptive purposes in bringing a king to Israel. Now, if you remember where we are, remember um, in the Jewish Bible, sort of the order of the Jewish Bibles, Ruth is put somewhere else in the Bible. So if you're reading this as a Jew in the original context, the previous verse before 1 Samuel was Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And here we have a woman who is praying in the midst of this, and this woman's prayer is going to reveal that she understands that her son is not just a baby. Her son will be the one through whom God raises up king, shepherd all of Israel. So in this first section, the Lord's righteous judgment in verses 1 through 3. This is immediately after... Hannah had left her son. The Lord had given her what she had asked for, and so she lent her son to the Lord. Now she's praying, and then she, by verse 11, she's going to return and leave her son in the temple with the priest Eli. But even so, even as she's giving away the great desire of her heart, her son, to be raised in the presence of the Lord, in the temple of the Lord, we read in verse 1, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts the Lord. Hannah rejoices, her heart rejoices in the Lord because of what he has done for her. Again, this is not just a story about a woman seeking a baby. Hannah understands that God is working his redemptive, salvific purposes through her son. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. And when she talks about a horn, she's talking about a horn like an animal would have a horn, not like a musical instrument, but like an animal's horn. Because the image she's using here is one of strength and power. If you've ever seen um, an older uh, majestic deer or elk, and you think about those great racks of antlers that they have, uh, the really majestic ones, those convey, this is an old, powerful animal. And its, its horns show off the strength of that animal. And Hannah is saying, that's what the Lord has done for her. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Now, Hannah is using this image of power horns, which is so ironic because she is someone who was powerless so long throughout the course of her life. She was someone who had been weak and powerless, but she's saying that her strength had been exalted in the Lord. So she says, my mouth derides my enemies. I rejoice in your salvation. Now, if you remember, 
Hannah was not the only wife to her husband, Elkanah. Elkanah had another wife, Penina, and Penina had many children. Now again, we talked about this um, kind of bigamy was something that happened. It was not a good thing. It was contrary to God's purposes for marriage as being between one man and one woman for life. There were multiple um, wives here. That's wrong in the sight of the Lord. And we see a lot of heartache that came out of it in this story and other stories in the Bible because Penina mocked Hannah mercilessly. But when Hannah says this, my mouth derides my enemies, she's not sticking it to Penina. Not saying, see, I told you so. Penina is really a symbol for all of the enemies of the people of God. And that's going to become clear in the next. My mouth derides my enemies. Why? Not so that I can gloat over you, but because, she says, I rejoice in your salvation. She's rejoicing in the salvation of what the Lord has done for her. Now, a moment ago, I says this, again, this isn't a story about a woman and a baby. I've said that a couple of times here. And we see that in verse 2. Because you notice, as Hannah is talking about this, she says, there is none holy like the Lord. That's where she goes. She initially expresses her joy over what the Lord has done for her, and then she says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. She is praising the Lord not because of the gift that the Lord has given to her. She is praising the Lord for a vulgar As not only the giver of all good things, the one that we get stuff from, but as the one who is so high and exalted, the one who is set apart from all things as the holy, holy, holy one. Unholy like the Lord. No rock like our God. Therefore, in verse 3, Hannah says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Now, here's where we know that Hannah is not gloating over Penina. Because when she says, uh, let not arrogance come from your mouth, the word there for your in Hebrew is plural. Talking to multiple people. All y'all. Let not arrogance come from all your mouths. The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are made, are, are weighed. What Hannah is confessing here is her knowledge of the Lord righteously judges his enemies. And again, think about This is not a story of a woman who wanted a baby. In the context of the period of the judges, this would have been such a debated claim. She wasn't the only one praying here. Well, there weren't many. The righteous who would have been crying out to the Lord, for the Lord to bring righteousness into Israel, would have long labored over their prayers, would have felt like they were leaving that voicemail on a customer service line and not hearing any response. Does the Lord see? Does the Lord care? that there is no king in Israel and every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. Hannah's suffering at the hands of Penina is sort of a picture. It's a representative of everything that is going wrong in the nation of Israel. And she's recognizing that what the Lord has done for her is a small picture, a window, a microcosm of everything that God is going to do cosmically to save people. Is a God really there? Is he really judging between good and evil? Does he see? Does he care? Hannah says, yes. This week I I saw a video from a famous preacher. It's a little old, but I saw a video from a famous preacher who made blasphemous claim that Christians need to untether 
their confidence in Christianity from the Scriptures. He says the important thing is not that the Scriptures are inerrant, infallible, that they are authoritative. He says a lot of people can pick that apart, and they're right. The Bible's full of errors, he says. We don't want to tether our hope to that. But what he said was what Christians need to do is rather to tether our hope to the event of the resurrection, not to the Scriptures. Now, this is just foolish on the face of it, namely because we don't know anything about the resurrection outside of the Bible. You cannot saw off the, 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 the tree limb that you're sitting on in this way. If the Bible is not true, then the resurrection is not true. And if the resurrection is not true, then we are of all people most to be pitied. We are still in our sins if there is no resurrection from the dead. But that's not the part that I want to talk about. I want to talk about what he said next, because the next thing he said was to make a little joke. Pause for a moment, and he said, oh, good. No lightning. No lightning. He was making a joke that God did not strike him dead there for the blasphemous statement that he was making. Now, this was beyond what he said, to add insult to injury for a man who was ostensibly a preacher of the gospel. But in that moment, he was expressing an enticement towards sin. But I think all of us know, all of us are familiar with, all of us have heard this whispered in our ear from time to time. Does God really see this? Will God really punish me for this? Am I not going to get away with this? Am I not already getting away with whatever I am doing right now? Questions, does God see? Does God care? They're not only questions that we ask in the midst of despair, they are also questions that we ask when we wonder if God will judge righteousness. So interesting, the Psalms are filled with this question, warning the wicked not to think that God has failed to notice what they are doing. Psalm 10, verse 11, we read the boast, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. Psalm 64, verse 5, they hold fast to their evil purposes, thinking, who can see them? Psalm 78, verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Which is why it's so important that this poor, humble, mocked Israelite woman confesses Lord, God, knowledge. By Him, actions are weighed. The Lord will judge. He will judge His people. He will judge His enemies and the enemies of His people. And the Lord will judge righteously. But what Hannah offers here is not only a warning, a strong for those who would misuse their power. He also prays rejoicing in God's promises to the weak. This brings us to the second section, the Lord's reversal of the strong and the weak in verses 4 through 8. Now, remember at the beginning of this how this song started. Hannah has already been talking about the Lord's reversal of her fortune. My horn is exalted in the Lord. This is a, a, a hornless woman, someone who had no power, and yet she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. The song began with a statement of reversal, and now She's going to continue that. So in verse 4, she says, the bows of the mighty are broken. The bows, uh, their weaponry, their strength, their power, these are broken, but the feeble find on strength. Those who are strong are no longer strong. Those who are weak are binding on strength. The Lord is reversing their fortune. Look again in verse 5. Those who were full 
have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Whoever had much food now has nothing. Whoever has no food now ceases to hunger. And again, now she brings it into the realm of bearing children, which was what she had originally prayed for. Baron has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Now, if you peek across the page to verse 21 of this chapter, we read, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And this is in addition to Samuel. The boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So Hannah has eventually six children. She says here that the barren has borne seven because, again, she's not so much talking about her specific situation. The enemy is not Panina. The one she's singing about is not specifically her. And so she's talking about this principle that the Lord gives the barren seven children. Seven is a number of completion and wholeness. And she's saying, the Lord fills us up when we are empty. Those who have many children or And in verses 6 through 7, she makes a series of quick contrasts. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, that's the the grave, the place of the dead, and he raises up, raises up from the dead. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. The Lord brings low and he exalts. And then in verse 8, he starts talking about reversals. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. And again, she's not so much talking about what God is going to do to the mighty. She's talking about the great promises that God has for the weak. Lifts them up from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Then look what she says at the end of verse 8. She grounds the promises that she's citing. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's. On them set the world. What Hannah is, our, is doing is grounding the song that she is singing on the fundamental principle that God is both the creator of the world and therefore the providential sustainer and upholder of the world. The one who created the earth is the one who will continue to uphold it, and therefore he, the one who created it, and the one who is providentially powerful over the world, is more powerful than the mighty of the world. In fact, God can cast them down and God can lift up powerless. The one who set the world on its pillars. What's so interesting, if you think about stories in the world, so interesting how common this plot pattern is. Now, this idea of of the one who has created something being the one who holds the secret knowledge and ability that's able to to save the day. Think about if you've read or heard or seen this story before, that there's some big crisis, often caused by some system or some machine, and the only way to save the day, the only way to learn how to solve this crisis is by seeking out the creator of that system. The creator knows the loopholes. The creator knows how to stop the system in some cases, or to exploit the system, or to fix the system and set it right. Whether you're thinking maybe about a movie where they have to track down the inventor of a computer system named Joshua to avert global thermonuclear war games, or whether someone has to try to find the inventor of a flux capacitor for time travel to learn how to get back to the future. We love this storyline. We love this storyline. Because we love the idea there's someone who can help us in the system that we find ourselves, in the crisis in which we find ourselves. And that's in this point. 
We have access in prayer to the one who created the world and to the one who it continues to uphold every part of the world by the word of his power. There is not a proton, a neutron, or electron at the atomic level that does not remain in its place because God says so. This is the one whom we can seek in prayer. It is not a vain thing. It is not a waste of your time to reach up to the Lord in prayer. Because when the weak can turn nowhere else, the Lord is able to turn the tables because as Hannah puts it, the Lord is the one who fashioned the pillars, the legs of that table. The Lord reverses the strong and the weak. The Lord just doesn't do this just to cause mayhem, shake things up. Specifically, what Hannah goes on to bring all of this to say is that the Lord will specifically cast down the wicked to raise up the godly, and he will do this through his anointed. So this is the third section, the Lord's raising up his anointed in verses 9 through 11. In verse 9, Hannah says, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. The wicked should be cut off darkness, and not by might shall a man prevail. Now notice here that she's no longer just talking about general contrast between the strong and the weak. Because she's never been talking simply about all the weak. And she's never been talking about all the strong. She's been talking specifically about how the Lord raises up the faithful weak, the righteous weak, and about how the Lord puts down those who use their strength and depend upon their strength for wickedness, for self-sufficiency, for sinful pride rebelling against the Lord. But at the end of verse 9, she states her principle that not by might shall a man prevail. The ultimate prevailing is in the hands of the Lord, not might men. Well, in verse 10, she brings all of this to a head. She says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The Lord is going to shatter and thunder against his adversary. He does see. He does care. He will judge with righteousness and equity. Ultimately, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will judge between the evil and the righteous. And notice what she says here. The Lord will give strength. Remember, in those days, there was no king. The first mention we have. This book is going to be all about the rising, not only of one king, but of a second king. Not only of Saul, who eventually follows the way that Hannah warns against here and, and falls away and is, uh, the kingdom is torn from him, but then also the, the, the uh, King David. Now, King David will have his flaws to be sure, but throughout his life, even when he sins, he returns humbly and repentantly to the Lord. Here, though, Hannah says, the Lord is going to give strength to his people. The ultimate hope, the ultimate promise is what the Lord is going to do for his king. And notice also what she says. Not only is the Lord going to give strength to his king, he is going to exalt the horn of his anointed. Now this word for anointed, we should remember that this referred to the anointing of oil. Kings were anointed with oil. Prophets were anointed with oil. Priests were anointed with oil. The anointing of oil was a symbolism of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we see this when both Saul and uh, when uh, David are anointed as king. 
the Holy Spirit, we read, rushed upon them from that day forward. Now, eventually, the Holy Spirit departed from Saul. By after David sins with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, he prays, take not your spirit from me. He's praying that the same faith that uh, happened to Saul would not happen to him for his sin. And therefore, he's repenting to the Lord and begging his mercy in that situation. But the anointing was tied to exactly that, to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. This word for anointing is important also. Understand, when we talk about anointing, the anointed one, we are talking about the Hebrew word Messiah, but it's translated in the Greek as For the Lord will exalt the horn of his Messiah, of his Christ. Here we see Emma is basically looking not just to the anointing of David, King David's descendant, Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Christ. So what's this going to look like? Strength to his king and exalting the horn of his anointed. Well, in the case of David, it's going to mean protecting him when he is pursued to the death by Saul. For Jesus Christ, this is going to mean raising him up from dead. You see, the fortunes are going to be reversed. The one who starts seemingly strong, seemingly outwardly powerful, that one is going to be cast down. But the one who starts and has no outward appearance, no beauty that we should desire him, that one is going to be the one that the Lord exalts. And notice here, just as Hannah began, so she's ended. Because the Lord has exalted my horn. Here she says, the Lord at the very end will exalt the horn of his anointed. These ideas are our horn, our strength is going to be raised up, is going to be exalted because the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's anointed one, his horn has been raised up. Ultimately, what that means is that because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, we know and we can have confidence, and this is foretold all the way back here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, that we will be raised up. Our horn, our power, our fate rests with the exaltation of the horn, God's anointed Messiah. So interesting, we all want our horn to be exalted. Start off in verse 1, and we read about the Thomas. Horn is going to be exalted, and we're saying, yes, I want to be vindicated. I want my issues to be settled. I want to come out on top of the issues that I'm facing, especially against the paninas in my life. But what Hannah's song teaches us to remember is that the question is whether we are willing for our horn to be exalted through the exaltation of the horn of the anointed one. Later on in the book of Samuel, we're going to see this play out in the different reaction, the exaltation of the horn of David. Two different reactions to that in Saul, the king, now remember, Saul sinned, and because he sinned, the kingdom was torn away from him. He has one reaction, and Saul's son, Jonathan, has a very different Now, for Jonathan, Jonathan knew that if the kingdom was torn away from Saul and given to David, that meant that Jonathan would not be king. But whereas Saul hates David, rages against David, seeks to use all of his power as king to kill David, Jonathan has the exact opposite response. Rejoices. He wants to be exalted in the horn of David. He's not concerned about himself, even though it means that he will not be king, even though it means eventually he must die. He knows that his hope is better placed in the Lord's anointed 
and in clinging to his own claims for power. And the same question faces us today. In our pride, will we rejoice in the exaltation of our horn if it means a demotion? To fall under the shadow of the horn of the Lord's anointed. If we must decrease, will we rejoice Jesus? My application tonight from this verse is, from this passage is this, put your confidence in the Lord and in the Lord's now, our sermon text this morning and this evening is really getting at the same question. Where is our confidence? Is it in our wisdom and our understanding? Is it in our strength? Or do we come like infants and put our trust in the Lord's? Maybe this evening you are looking to your career or your schoolwork or your achievements in some area. The question that Hannah is asking and pressing by the logic of this song is this, what will happen when you stumble? What will happen when you fail? What will happen when someone beats you at whatever game that you play that you want to excel in? Or maybe you're looking for your, your confidence in your relationship, your friends, your family, your spouse. What will happen when those people invariably let you down? And when friends move away, when people who are dearly loved by us eventually die? Where will we be left by this if we are trusting in those things to be the be-all and end-all for us? Maybe this evening you're looking at your reputation or the respect that others have for you for one reason or another. What will happen if you're falsely accused? What will happen when you're persecuted for following Jesus, when the world turns against you? In every circumstance, if our hope is in what's happening in the moment, the situation we are facing in the moment, we're going to lose heart. This is so subtle. So often, we don't know that our hope and our confidence is in the wrong place until that point is particularly challenged. And then we realize by the reaction that rises up in our soul, this was more important to me than I even realized, but the Lord, having knocked that out from under me, now I have to choose. Will I look to the Lord, or will I rage and try to cling to whatever He can when trials come, they first of all expose where our confidence truly is. They really do give us an opportunity to rediscover our confidence in Jesus. Repent for how much rest. We talked about rest this week, finding rest in Jesus. Give us an opportunity to, to, to repent for how much rest we are seeking from something other than Jesus. And to return to repent, to redirect our rest properly toward. Now this evening, Maybe going through some really difficult things. Maybe asking, does anybody see? Does anybody care? Does the Lord hear my prayers? And I am not here to discount the pain and the difficulty that life is so hard. Life is so painful. Instead, I want to encourage you in the confidence that Hannah rejoices in. It is the same confidence that Jesus spoke to us in the passage this morning. Now again, Hannah has less of the oak tree and more of the acorn. She doesn't see how all of this is coming together. She's seeing just the beginning of it. It might just be dappling at this point in redemptive history. But she doesn't know the fullness of it, and yet she is trusting in the same covenant Lord. Salvation. Again, the day of disaster in those days. 
those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And yet Hannah clung to the fact that the Lord, the one who set the world on its pillars, was still powerful to raise up the weak and to cast down the strong. She was clinging to the same Lord who promised us, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is This is the same gospel Hannah clung to. Same gospel that we have received, we just have more detail about the great extent to which our covenant Lord will go to secure his promises for us, even to the extent of sending his son to die for us on the cross. What Hannah perceives here, and this is so instructive, what her song teaches us is that the Lord reverses fortunes. The Lord raises up the weak and the righteous while casting down the strong and the wicked. If this evening you are going through deep trials, or you pour out your heart for the Lord's name? After she poured out her heart before the Lord, Hannah put all your energy in him because he Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the one whom she is exulting in here. Give rest to your soul. Again, this doesn't mean that we are going to get everything that we want. Jesus promises us rest. Can you trust Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? To what degree do you trust Jesus? Confidence we have isn't made up, name it and claim it nonsense. The hope we have is in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Because his horn was raised up and exalted, our horn will be raised up with him in life and even in death, resurrection. Confidence we have is not in whether God will magically fix our circumstances. Rather, our hope is the fact that God will raise us up with him. Christ has raised up so also when he returns, hope is. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would put our confidence in Jesus, our hope in him, that he would be everything to us, even when the world rages around us, even when the strong and mighty press upon us from whatever direction that each individual person is. Pray. Jesus would be enough for us. He would be everything. Our hearts, Hannah's would exalt Lord, the knowledge and the confidence has exalted our hope. He, the anointed one who died, raised up. In Christ's name we pray.